0: They decide to start importing slaves from Lithuania into Ireland these guys went after like some of the most vulnerable people in society we can give you a great job, we'll bring you to Ireland they come here the gang would take their passports, their documents tell them they're in debt and how you're going to repay that debt is, is by selling drugs on our behalf on the streets and if you don't do it, we'll kill you
1: I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World A podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. A Lithuanian gang who flew unwitting slaves into Ireland to sell heroin and then starved and beat them sounds like the plot from a TV crime drama. But that's exactly what happened over the course of 15 years until Gardaí, the PSNI and their Eastern European counterparts uncovered the mob. Known as the Russians, the gang-fuelled Northern Ireland's emerging heroin market from the mid-2000s and later placed agents in Cork, Galway, Waterford and Kerry after being run out of Dublin by bigger gangs. Today... I'm talking to journalist Paulie Doyle, who followed the trail of gang leader Kestutis Klimauskas and his violent lieutenants from Lithuania into the heart of loyalist Belfast and onwards to the big cities of Ireland, where they pocketed a fortune from the slave dealers. In a lengthy investigation for Vice World News and working with the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, Paulie drew together the pieces of a story that make for an incredible insight into organised crime in a modern world. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Paulie, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime released data in 2019, which showed that the street
0: price of heroin in Ireland is, it's pretty expensive here, isn't it? I believe it's the second highest in Europe. Um, and it's even more expensive in, in Northern Ireland. And um, I think one of the reasons that these guys were attracted to the North was because the, the profit margins were so high.
1: Mm. And why is it so expensive, I wonder? Is it because it has to travel that extra little bit across the Irish Sea after it hits the UK?
0: I don't know. I mean, at the time, I think that they were the only game in town, so to speak, and they could mm, uh, mm. kind of set, set their own price.
1: Ah, so they 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 being exactly who we're going to talk about now. Um an extraordinary story that I had heard bits about over the years and you know, remarks would have been made, but I never saw it knitted together so uh, comprehensively um as your article in Vice World News. And this story centers on a gang. That were known as the Russians but they were actually Lithuanians because here in Ireland we don't know our Lithuanians from our Russians and maybe it suited them <laughs> but tell me a little bit about them uh how they arrived and and who headed
0: them up. So the head of this gang was a guy called Kestas or Kestudis Klemouskis. Uh, you call him Kestas Klemouskis, some people do. Um, so he shows up in Ireland sometime in the mid to late 2000s and um He's a career criminal. He's involved in stuff like shoplifting rackets and kind of various different kind of criminal enterprises. Um, gets involved in selling heroin and selling other drugs at some point and with a group of his mates tries to kind of start an operation in Dublin. Um, they discover that Dublin is pretty much sewn up, so they start to move northwards. Um, first, I think they end up in Louth, and then they go to Belfast where a few of them move into a house on the Donegal Road which is a a loyalist area, and start Mm. selling heroin.
1: Now, what's significant about that is, and, uh, you know, we only kind of know about it because our colleagues in the North have told us, but heroin was late coming to Belfast. Heroin was here. I mean, Dublin estates would have been in the grip of heroin by the very early 1980s. I think it first started to arrive at the end of the 1970s and it really took hold. But the North sort of seemed to escape it until much later. I mean, you're talking well into the 2000s before the first signs of heroin um, are seen in the north.
0: Yeah, there wasn't really any heroin dealing on a on like a, a large scale in, in Northern Ireland during the Troubles because, well, for one, it was one of the most heavily policed places in Europe, if not the most heavily policed. Um, and also paramilitaries, in particular the Provisional IRA, would have targeted drug dealers and drug users. Um, the latter they, they saw as you know potentially uh, people who could potentially give away information about republican activities to whether that be the British Army or loyalist paramilitaries or whoever. So, drugs. I mean, there were there were drugs in Northern Ireland, but my understanding is it was mostly user dealers. So, if you were uh, into heroin, you'd. You'd get the bus to Dublin or Manchester or Liverpool or wherever and you'd buy an ounce of it, bring it back and maybe sell it to your friends to fund your own habit. And That was the, the kind of scale that the drugs were sold on prior to uh, or during the trouble, I should say. When you
1: think about the control that the the provosts had over the community, they were a policing system nearly, weren't they? It's, you know, in in 2022, it's hard to believe that any grouping could actually control people not taking drugs you know, yeah. um, and I think that the old school provos did genuinely not like drugs. I think it's just kind of as they as they evolve into the the breakaway groups that they start getting involved in it themselves. They see the potential, the money to be made, et cetera. But I'm slightly going off on a tangent there. Anyway, so. This Lithuanian, he settles in and a group of his his pals move in with him and they decide that they are going to supply the north of Ireland with heroin.
0: Yes, and uh, my understanding is that a group of local paramilitaries were unhappy about this development, understandably. And so the two kind of groups started going to tit for tat. Um, I don't think these guys even really knew <laughs> what loyalism was. So it seems, it seems pretty crazy to us that these guys from Eastern Europe would come in and just start shooting, having shooting matches with loyalist paramilitaries, but that's what they did. And then I'm told by people familiar with the, the, the drug market in, in Northern Ireland that the fact that these guys were able to continue selling drugs suggests that they came to some sort of a financial arrangement. And The Sunday World actually reported reported on that, I believe, a few years ago.
1: Now, while it may seem crazy that they came in and started shooting at the loyalist gangs. The loyalists thought they were Russian. (laughs) So maybe they thought it was a bit crazy that,
0: because they are two very different countries, Russia and Lithuania. That's actually something that uh, we spoke with a criminologist uh, called James Wendell for the the article. And he, he said that um, some of these Eastern European gangs, because of kind of popular depictions of, you know, Russian gangs in, in, in movies and stuff like that, they can arrive in other countries with a, a pre-made, fearsome reputation that's often to their benefit.
1: Well, they don't need to be in the criminal underworld now to, to strike fear into us, the Russians, when we see what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it'll be a long time before um, their reputa- reputation is salvaged from that. So what happens next and, and you know, wh- how does this gang evolve and, and wh- why do they become so interesting Uh in connection with the slave trade.
0: Yeah, I mean, so at some point then they decide to start importing slaves from Lithuania into Ireland. So what they would do was they had a number of recruiters stationed in Lithuania. They were based in a town called Plunia, which is in Western Lithuania. And, you know, something I think that's key here is these guys went after, like, some of the most vulnerable people in society. That's who was being targeted here. So that could be drug addicts, alcoholics people who just left prison that those were the people that these guys went after so they come up to them and they say you know we can give you a great job we'll bring you to Ireland you know whether that be working in a factory security guard or you know so, something like that and then these guys you know I think maybe because they were in poverty and desperate they might maybe ask as many questions as say someone else might um mm-hmm. They come here, the gang will take their passports, their documents, tell them they're in debt, and how you're going to repay that debt is, is by selling drugs on our behalf on the streets. And if you don't do it, we'll kill you. And this, this happened to, uh, you know, the, the official figures from the police, were sick. they've identified 65 victims, but, I mean, we spoke with a former affiliate of the gang who said that it was probably hundreds of people that they did this to. And this was going on
1: from the mid 2000s basically onwards. In the mid to late 2000s onwards, yeah. Mm. And um, was it just around Northern Ireland that they they were they were dealing or did they you know did their tentacles come back down again over the border at some point? Yeah, so they
0: they, they were in Northern Ireland then they ex- they seemed to kind of expand their operations. So they had they had major operations in Belfast, Waterford, Cork, Tralee, Dublin, but they seemed to have popped up everywhere like I read You know, when I was putting this story together, I read local news reports of these guys in Galway, in Limerick. Mm. So they seem to have really kind of chanced their arm and basically everywhere in Ireland. But those five areas are where they seem to have stuck and where they had substantial operations.
1: It's interesting that, you know, that timeline that you're talking about, the mid 2000s onwards, that's probably when um, you start seeing heroin move into those Regions and and kind of be more significant drug for sale and in, in areas that wouldn't necessarily have had you know while there was always cannabis all over the country, um reports from around then mm. onwards would have been that you know smaller rural towns and and uh, populations would have been concerned about the amount of heroin, um for sale and and how easily it was for sale they were reporting on people in addiction and that kind of thing from within their communities, um. So that's very intriguing that they seem to have been entrepreneurial, really, in where they found their markets.
0: Yeah, and they, they seem to be able to sell people drugs a lot faster than other gangs uh, just mm-hmm. because of the business model that they used. So they'd have someone on a phone line and you'd call them and you could say, hello, I want to buy a bag of heroin and you would tell them your location. And then they they'd message a runner who would come and meet you as quickly as 10 minutes later, mm-hmm. you know. So they, they were they were offering, I don't know if you want to call it a better customer service than their rivals, let's say. Um, I also think that the the model that they use where you have these kind of vulnerable people, you know, kind of conveyor belt of vulnerable people going around the island of Ireland selling drugs on their behalf, kind of shielded the higher members from the police because they didn't really have drugs on them that much, is my understanding.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, when you hear of this sort of um slave labour within the sex trade, what they tend to do is keep them on the move. So as they can't lay down any roots within an area, within a city, they can't make friends, I suppose. And therefore it's harder to call for help if you're trapped in a situation like that. Would it have been similar? Were they moving the dealers around?
0: Yeah, I mean, there was total control over these guys' lives from, as we just said, where they were, but also kind of, you know, even when they ate meals. So these guys were told not to eat meals before certain times because, you know, that it would be easier to swallow drugs if they were apprehended by the police. Um, so, they, you know, they keep the drugs in their mouth as well. So if you're selling drugs on the streets of Chile or Cork or wherever and a guard comes up to you, you can just swallow the drugs and you have nothing in your stomach. So you're able to later regurgitate them and the gang doesn't lose any money. You know, these guys didn't, a lot of these victims didn't have English language skills. And, mm-hmm. um you know, they didn't have English. And for whatever reason, maybe they, they were afraid to go to the, the police. So you're really in a bad situation. You're a vulnerable person. You probably you, A lot of them, they deliberately targeted people with no family or friends in Lithuania. You're brought to a strange place where you don't speak the language. And you're also then afraid to go for help um, because you don't know what will happen if you do. Well,
1: totally understandable. Mm-hmm. I mean, even somebody with an education doesn't particularly want to go into a police station in a foreign country and go, can you help me? I'm a drug dealer. I've been selling drugs. So they, you know, they had them committing the crime, I suppose, which mm. entraps them in itself. Um, so at the top tier here, we have Clamauskas. And is he staying largely in the north in Belfast or is he moving around and policing this?
0: So he did, he did move around a bit, but he, he, I believe he had an address in, in North Strand, actually, in Crosby's Yard Apartments, yeah. And then in about 2019, he moved back to Lithuania as well, um, where he kind of oversaw a number of businesses that, that he started, including a large garage in Plunia. And he was back mm-hmm. and forth between the two countries. But he would have moved around Ireland overseeing, you know, the various kind of operations in different cities in both the north and, and yeah. Here.
1: And how many others would have been sort of in that top tier with him?
0: So he was at the very top. And then he had two lieutenants. It was Andreas Pogoyas, who is dead now, actually. Um, he killed himself um, in Wheatville Prison in, in January 2021. Um, there was another lieutenant who we've been advised, actually, we can't name for, for legal reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then beneath them, there were five regionally based supervisors, four of which we named in the article. And then another one we can't actually Legal advice, we can't say
1: who he was. And they were all based in the various outposts as such they had, maybe one in Galway, one in Waterford, yeah. one in Kerry, and they were managing the, the this the slave dealers that they had working yeah. there for them. And what sort of money were they pocketing from this? And was there any indication of how much how much money that Klamauskus Made out of this over over a period of fifteen years, really.
0: Yeah, I, we understand that he was making like it was probably about ten grand a day. I think he could have been making. Now I don't know whether that was he told somebody uh, that we spoke with that uh, he was making up to he could make ten grand a day from selling drugs. I don't know if that was personally for him or if mm, it was the entire yeah, operation the as a whole. Or it's hard to say, but they made a lot of money. You know? Yeah, yeah.
1: So tell me how did they eventually get caught or what 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 was the sequence of events that sort of maybe police forces in the republic and the PSNI started to join some dots together and realize that they had a problem
0: um, so in 2017 these guys were referred to Eurojust um, who I think facilitate kind of uh, cross jurisdictional operations between police forces so the guards the PSNI and the Lithuanian police got together Gathered evidence and um, you know set about creating a plan to dismantle these guys. Um, it took mm. it took about three years, and then in August 2020 there were raids in Lithuania, Northern Ireland, and Ireland, which you know put the kind of chopped the head off the group, so to speak, and put the the leadership in prison.
1: And what was the plan in the in the meantime in that within that three years? How did that manifest itself? Did they carry out surveillance or? Did they do any undercover work any purchasing of drugs from these guys or did they try and in some way you know get them to get them to 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 talk?
0: It's hard to say. I know that I know that the PS and I had previously done undercover uh operations against these guys. Um the Belfast supervisor, a guy called Gintus Vangalis was put in prison in 2015 because he got caught in a sting. So two PS and I guys went in They went to a street Mm. dealer and said they wanted to buy a large quantity of heroin. So then he showed up and met them in a pub and told them. He was gone by the name Russian Anton, bought them a Mm. few pints, gave them an ounce of heroin or whatever it was, and then they arrested him. And I think he ended up doing, he got 42 months, 21 in prison, and then 21 on supervised release.
1: And no doubt got straight back into it as soon as he got out. It would
0: appear appear so, yeah. So the Mm. next time he pops up, then he's in Tralee in early 2020 and he's handed a fake driver's licence to the guards and he's driving around with no insurance as well. Um, mm. So, yeah, he I think as far as I know, he just went straight back into it as soon as he got out of prison.
1: As they all do, or nearly all of them anyway. Yeah. So, Paulie, did you get to speak to any of these people that were sort of trafficked, really, into the country on the guise of, you know, getting legitimate employment and then found themselves... Passports stolen and being dictated to as regards what they did all day and how they ate.
0: Yeah, we spoke with two guys. We spoke, we spoke with, uh, we spoke with the guy who ended up in Cork. Traffic, he was traffic to Cork after being offered work, and we spoke with another guy who ended up in who ended up in Belfast. Yeah, and um, you know it was the same thing. They were very very vulnerable people. They might have had addiction issues, or they might have maybe had something bad happen in their life, and this gang targeted them. And offer them, you know, the chance at a better life. When they got here, they found out, unfortunately, you know, it wasn't the case. And how did they
1: eventually get out of us, or how did they, and and if they did, did they remain here, or did they go back to Lithuania?
0: I can't, I can't say where they are now, um, mm-hmm. but you know, they they would have engaged with uh, the, the authorities, and they would have engaged with, the, with various tra- anti-trafficking NGOs and that kind of thing. Who would have, who would have facilitated, who would help them?
1: presumably they you know part of the takedown plan basically led the authorities to them and maybe uh, they were offered some help and some support systems
0: um well these guys this was pre this was prior to the gang being dismantled so these guys had kind of been trafficked and and left and been replaced mm-hmm. you know by the time the the police swooped in
1: yeah so ultimately um the the big boys were were Brought in, and the main man was back in Lithuania, though.
0: Mm-hmm. So they arrested him at his garage, and he's been on remand ever since, still in pre trial investigation.
1: The Lithuanian police arrested
0: him? Uh, yeah, Yeah. Klimaskis. Yeah, he was in, uh, it's a it's a large garage in Plunia. It's called UAB Transportas, I believe, and they do kind of they repair people's cars and sell tires or whatever. But he was there, so they swooped in there. That's where he was at the time. But I'm sure if he'd been in Ireland, The guards would have arrested him, you know, because there were European arrest warrants issued for these guys. Uh, And what has happened to the others? Uh, So then is on remand. He's in the North. He's in, he's in MacGabery and his trial, his, uh, his hearing is next month. So he'll know, he'll know whether he's going to be extradited or not. And then the rest of the leadership are on remand in various prisons across Ireland as well. And, uh, Sandra Pagoya, who was married to Pagoyas, is actually on bail. Um, so she's she's out as well.
1: So at some point, the Lithuanians took over this investigation and they decided they wanted to prosecute them in Lithuania because are they prosecuting them for, for trafficking? They clearly won't be able to prosecute them for drug dealing there, will they?
0: Uh, that's a good question. I mean, they, they want the Lithuanians want these guys in connection with you know, supplying uh, illegal substances in connection with human trafficking, in connection with criminal association, which in Lithuania carries a life sentence. So, no, I think they do want them to do with, they do want them uh, for drug dealing. Yeah, and in, in Lithuania, yeah.
1: So they're able to do that even though the dealing happened in a different territory?
0: I think it was determined that because everyone involved was Lithuani- in Lithuania and because a great deal of kind of the, you know, the... Deceiving the people happened in Lithuania, even though the people were brought to to Ireland and Northern Ireland, that they they would just they would, they would prosecute them in Lithuania. You know, but you could equally prosecute them here.
1: Yeah. No. Interestingly enough, there was a another case not involving drugs, but involving the Romanian gang had sent over a group of workers to Ireland and had treated them very badly, paid them nothing, taken their passport. Similar type of a situation, except they were working them on. Farms, yeah, and they were also prosecuted back in Romania for the crimes that occurred here in Ireland, so it's just um it's just an interesting way of being able to um to do that. I'm not one hundred percent sure we'd be able to do that in in Ireland if if the crimes had happened in a different jurisdiction,
0: yeah, I mean some of the some of the guys are so there's a guy who was in Tralee, Rocus Ventius, who was a supervisor. he's currently serving an Irish sentence related to drug dealing, after which he will be extradited. Um,
1: so. And these further charges involving probably organised crime. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, It's a fascinating story, and
0: um, it's there on vice.com. As a, but yeah, Vice World News, and uh, OCCRP as well um, have a, a version of it.
1: Yeah, because they, you worked with them on the story.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project is a consortium of investigative journalism centres from around the world, and we worked with Siena, which are uh, which are a Lithuanian investigative journalism centre, and uh, they helped us with the story. They Migler and Sharonis they did a fantastic job uh, finding out everything to do with the Lithuanian end of this story.
1: When you're trying to work on something that's a bit trans global, it's always great to to partner up with journalists in different countries, and mm. you get you get a, a much broader look at at the story. So look, for, for today, Paulie Doyle, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from SundayWorld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free SundayWorld.com app. For lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.